Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E.com. Today, the spotlight is on Eli Ball and David Boxenbaum from Lyric Financial. Lyric provides innovative financing services to the global music community. This comes in the form of royalty advances, music business lines of credit, and music catalog loans. Lyric provides a fascinating and much-needed business model that you'll learn more about through the course of our discussion. Enjoy. We generally do one-on-one interviews on the show, so since we have two guests today, I would love it if maybe you could each just take, you know, 20, 30 seconds um, and tell the audience a little bit about who you are and why you're here on this particular discussion. And uh, I think, uh, why don't we flip the coin and uh, between the two of you, you could pick which side it lands on and who gets to go first. Box is the, box is the guy. (laughs) Um, So uh, my name is uh, David Boxenbaum. I'm a senior advisor to Lyric Financial. Um, I've been kind of at the intersection of music and tech for the last 20 odd years uh, having started really consulting to tech companies, uh, doing strategy work, and then took a sharp left and started a record label called Octone Records, um, signed and developed several Platinum Acts, including Maroon 5, uh, sold that company. Um, uh, recently, I launched and ran the international company for AVEX, which is the largest music and entertainment company of Japan. Um, but I left to really focus on my um, my my real main interest as my careers evolve, which is really on the below the line music business, you know, on picks and shovels, enabling technology, um, because that's really to me where all the interesting opportunities are, um, dealing with everything from uh, enabling technology to helping tools to manage revenue and data, uh, and really the infrastructure that drives the business. Because my the first part of my career is very focused on the above the line business signing and developing artists and songwriters and and breaking them and uh to me this is really the, the below the line business you know which is really dealing with the options cost infrastructure is actually where the most i think the most opportunities for innovation are that's great there's a lot in there i want to come back to but uh let me switch over to eli for one second and, and get his intro hillbilly music banker first language uh rock and roll music hip-hop um wannabe banker um i say that because i grew up on the creative side of music as a producer a manager when i first started started with the oak ridge boys if you remember them Mm -hmm. They're still around, they're still touring. Well, they weren't this past year, but they still tour 150 plus days a year. Um, it's an, you know, it's a, it's kind of like Duke basketball. It just never goes away. Um, and I started like most people in the industry, um, especially on the creative side, I started as a gopher and uh, um, was fortunate in that the job that they wanted me to do when I first started in 1980 was 
literally managing an act that they had invested into, um, had spent a fair amount of money, really didn't get any traction on it. You know, I was still in college at the time. I was a white boy with an opinion. Hmm. Uh, I knew nothing about the music industry, you know, outside of the concerts that I worked on when I was in college. Um, and it was just more instinct than anything. But I was fortunate in that I got in with an act that was had been around for about 15 years and was a well-oiled machine that was transitioning from gospel to country and big difference. And they had just had their first hit record on their first album, Y'all Come Back Saloon, which is actually how I met William Lee, the singer with the long hair and a long beard. I produced a concert on him at my school. You know, we never did anything but rock and blues at my, at my school in jazz. We did Herbie Hancock. But um, when I came into the concert committee and said, you know, this is a really cool fucking record I just got from ABC Records, you know, because he used to get stacks of LPs, you know, and then they'd send them out on radio tours. And that's what we would normally book. And I looked at these guys and I was like, man, this is just because I grew up on gospel music, um, quartet music. So, you know, hearing this, with a contemporary country groove, I was like, man, it's dope. And, but everybody else is looking at me going, nah, Eli, you're out of your mind. So I booked them anyway. <laughs> we lost our ass. <laughs> Nobody showed up. I had a great time. <laughs> I made friends with Golden. And then, uh, you know, I was looking for something to do for the summer. And he said, why don't you come down to Nashville? And I was going to school at the University of Minnesota. So I came down, he said, look, I got, why don't you just, let me give you some projects to work on. And one of them was a young group that they had invested into. And in spite of all of their connections, couldn't get a deal for them. And so um, I did what any good Midwestern kid would do. I looked at them all, who many of them were children of music industry royalty and said, Couple things, guys. One, and they're all hung. They're all studio guys. Uh, one, um, we're not going to take any more money from the Oak Ridge Boys. Two, we're going to start practicing every day. And three, I'm going to book us some dates, and we're going to go out and play on the road. And the next day, five out of the eight quit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good forcing function for commitment. <laughs> and you leapfrog that. <laughs> you just think how to learn my lesson. But we ended up getting a record deal for those guys in about six months with Electra, and um, and then take a big jump forward. I kind of that's basically what I did the biggest the better part of my music industry career, which was I I, I moved from being a manager to there was a, a record company executive named Jimmy Bowen who was kind of a renegade in Nashville, um, studio guy, brilliant A&R guy, um, um, but definitely marched to his own drummer. And he was the one that encouraged me to take, you know, effectively my natural instincts and go into the studio and work with musicians. And, um, and so I did that for the better part of 10 years, and I was very fortunate. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you. Uh, you brought up the gospel quartet music. Let's go down that rabbit hole just for a second. I think it's really interesting that um, 
the history i i feel like the mainstream music industry doesn't really understand the history of southern gospel music and just what big business it is i were about 20 years or so ago i worked with uh with bill gaither and uh, oh, okay did a bunch of his tours and stuff did all his online stuff and uh through a company i used to run and i used to tell people bill gaither is the grateful dead of of southern gospel music he's playing yeah. 80 arenas around the country yep. and nobody really knows who he is outside of his community but yep. the impact that man's had on on and not just not just uh sacred music i mean the gospel elvis stuff um what he's done as a business person in publishing um it's a fascinating part of the business that um i wish more people knew about yeah and it's influenced um everybody from Patti LaBelle to Paul Simon. I mean, those harmonies and that structure, um, they're just, uh, you know, it, it's hard to understate exactly what you're talking about. It's as much a roots music form as, you know, R&B. That's right. And I'll tell you what, you want to have a fun night out, that going to one of those uh, – one of the homecoming tour shows that they used to put on. I mean, it's just that it's an onslaught of great, great American music. And uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a fun time. It's a really fun time. You know, we worked with a group in um, Atlanta um, when we first started our virtual ATM and uh, they're a TuneCore client. They distribute their music to TuneCore and they're no relation, but they're called the Ball Brothers. These guys are doing, you know, a hundred plus dates a year. And musically, they were more like jars of clay. They had, they had, I met them through an interview when I went down to go just visit a lot of tune cars because we went from doing maybe a hundred, 120 clients a year. And when we launched that virtual ATM, we went to 50, you know, it, it literally went from, a hundred clients to 1500 clients, literally in six or seven months. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And me being an A&R guy, you know, I always knew people by their music. That's how I identified with them and make a long story short. They took that whole contemporary Christian thing, but they structured the melodies uh, and the harmonies because they were truly a quartet. It's really cool music. And it was interesting just from a, you know, to see them kind of carve their space. And it, 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 one of the reasons I did it, I went on the road for three months to go learn. I realized that the business had radically changed in a visceral way that I didn't quite understand at DNA level. Cause I had grown up when we were cutting tape with a razor blade and you go out on the road and here's this band in Atlanta, coming out of the gospel music business, they were too contemporary for the gospel stations mm -hmm. and they were too gospel for the contemporary stations. And yet they were doing a hundred plus dates a year. They had um, endorsements, they had corporate uh, deals. And um, actually they called us because when I met with them, um, they took an advance from us. I said, well, what'd you use the advance for? And he said, well, you know, we live in Atlanta. There's a lot of television reality shows that get filmed here. And we wanted, to, you know, we got approached about doing one and kind of forging our own way in the gospel business where we didn't fit in either camp. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. 
And um, he said, so we decided that we would do, we didn't like the terms and we would do our own pilot. So we took an advance from you. We made our own pilot and we went out and pitched it without having to make a bad deal. That's right. I mean, the thing that used to blow my mind when I first learned about the Gaither business was, you know, Bill went out and bought the airtime. So now yeah. he's got the concerts. He sells tickets to the concerts, films the concerts, takes them home to his own post-production facility, edits them into hour-long episodes, buys the airtime, yep. airs his concerts. Now he owns the commercial time. So he's promoting his direct-to-consumer business, his concert tickets, his merchandise. I mean, it's just Did that sort of- Gaithoff actually learned from Bill Gaither? I'll tell you what, man. Because <laughs> that's, you know, you think about it just chronologically- Gaither was doing that long before Azoff was doing that on the Eagles and the rest of his kind of bands. It's stunning. It's really stunning. And I think to your point, like the, the, the necessity of that, of like not being embraced by any camp within the music business forces you to go build your own sort of ecosystem and your own alternative universe. Um, it's, it's really amazing. It's really, really amazing. But so tell me now something you said that's super interesting that I want to dig in on is that, um, you get to know artists or you identify with artists through their music as an, a when you, you know, when you sort of, when you're embodying yourself as an A&R guy, yep. how, how do you become a financial partner at scale? If you can't dig into everybody's music, is it, is it just a balance sheet business? Like how, how do you reconcile becoming a financial partner without having that gut feel for every one of the acts you work with? Well, part of it is that, the journey for creative, regardless of whether you're Amy Grant or Little Wayne, is the same. Mm. Um, what made me go on the road was that's not the same journey anymore that it used to be because of technology, because the way music's consumed, because the lack of geographic borders anymore, the viral nature of um, digital content. And so it really was my, I read an article by a, it was an interview with, I think it was the president of Lyft and they were or the CEO of Lyft and they were, you know, they were, they were really um, a long second and really kind of the afterthought to Uber. They were talking to him about it, about how he was continuing to, you know, to compete. And he said, I think one of the things that makes us different is that we stay in touch with our customers. And I thought, oh, you know, that's like the CEO of Warner Chapel saying, I, you know, I've got every, you know, every, all 16,000 songwriters that I'm signed to, that are signed here have got my number. Bullshit. You know, or if they do, you're not going to answer it. So, but in fact, what he was doing was he once, one week a month, this guy was going on the road and being a driver. And I'm thinking to myself, as big as this company is and at scale, he's going around the country and around the world driving for a week. It's 25% of his time. And he does it because he wants to see the new, how, how the driver, he reacts as a driver to the new software updates and to get feedback from customers. And I thought, you know what? If a CEO of a big time company can do this, that's exactly what I need to be doing. And so that's a long answer to your question to say that 
staying in touch with the music and is really important to me. For the job. So part I, the I will job. always be, you know, that hillbilly that walks in the studio and goes, I just think this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. And I don't care if you don't like the Ramones or I don't care if you don't like gangster rap, or I don't care if you don't like Billie Eilish, or I don't care if you don't like Lil Nas X, you don't think you should be on the country charts, you know, and listening to the music and watching on, you know, that's it. So I don't think I'm, the only thing that has changed about me is I've learned how to underwrite from a banking standpoint and manage risk. Um, I think about it the same way that, uh, I did when I made records. Think of producers in two camps, a technical producer that's pretty much an engineer, right? You're Mutt Lang. <clears throat> you walk in the studio, you do your thing. If I'm the listener, I know a Mutt Lang record, whether it's Shania Twain or, Mutt, I mean, or Def Leppard or ACDC or Brian Adams, like in two bars. I know that sound, right? And then there's kind of like that super A&R guy, like a Jerry Wexler in the old school from Atlantic Records or Rick Rubin, where they're not so much technical producers. As a matter of fact, Rubin doesn't even go to the studio most of the time. Um, they are super A&R guys, right? They have great instincts. They get into the psychology of trying to help that artist realize their vision, not give them a sound. I mean, you go from Chili Peppers to Johnny Cash, that's pretty radical. Yeah. You can go even more radical, which is, you know, some of the speed metal, death metal that, like Danzig, that Rick produced. Slayer. Yeah. yeah. And then you go to, uh, you know, the Johnny Cash stuff. And so I think that just to sh short answer your question is, there are some universal, what I would call fundamentals about being creative that haven't changed. Different faces, different tools, same game, yeah. same motivation. I've yet to meet a creative, no matter how core commercial they are or how street they are, that money's the number one validating factor. It's not. Right. They just need it. They just need it. They need the feedback from an audience. Yeah. It's yeah. the difference between them and an influencer. An influencer stays in a studio all day long or on their phone and does their thing. And even if they're not a performer, like a Nora Jones, who's, you know, really more of a songwriter, um, Randy Newman, you know, there's a part of that, that the reason they bring their, their, their art out of the bedroom and off the front porch is because they want validation for what they're creating. And that doesn't change. So all I did was add a skill set of learning how to be, a banker in an industry that I already, you know, understood the fundamental, fun, not only the fundamentals, but the nuances of why things worked and why they didn't. So if I went to, for instance, on my tour, I went to Austin and I met with, I'd never heard the term red dirt country and didn't have any clue of what it was. And it was one of the meetings I had lunch at one of those, you know, Honk, I mean, uh, the urban cowboy kind of clubs. And um, there was a lunch meeting and there's a couple of agents there and an attorney and a couple of managers. And we start, they start talking about this genre of music where these guys, because Texas is so damn big, 
these guys would go out and play arenas, yet they couldn't get arrested in Nashville. And I went, oh, can I go on tour with you guys? Like, Eli, you really want to go out on the road with us? I went, yeah, I do. And I mean, like for a week or something, or two weeks. Well, why? Because I want to know why those customers in there are paying to buy. I want to see how they react to the music. I want to see what they react to. I want to talk to the musicians. And I think, you know, when you understand that granular level, the music business, um, while it's accelerated and there are different tools, I think at the end of the day, now it's more of a data game in terms of being more nuanced in how you make your decisions. But ultimately, you know, the psychology of who you're dealing with and how to serve them and what their needs are, um, you got to go to the source. And so you kind of marry a knowledge of both. And I'm sorry that took so long on that no, answer, no, but no, no. It's, uh, it's understanding what that red dirt country artist has in common with little Nas X in Atlanta, putting up one track, you know, old, old town road on SoundCloud. Yeah. Let me, um, let me ask this, uh, of David. Um, can you give just the elevator pitch or the quick summation of exactly what it is you guys are up to at Lyric and who your ideal customer is? You like me to answer that? Yeah. Sure. Um, well, the, the short answer is, is we're, you know, is we're really trying to um, democratize financing for creators and, and owners of, of IP. Um, you know, the, if, if you really kind of think about, and, and our, you know, we're focused on the music business, but we're actually starting to expand to other folks who um, have similar profiles. And, you know, what, and really what attracted me to Lyric and what I started working with Eli was, you know, the traditional kind of manual artist finance was largely relegated to larger artists being, uh, you know, whether it's from a label or a publisher or they have a big enough business, they can go to one of these kind of, in essence, factoring companies like a bank and basically say, okay, send us, you know, three years of royalty statements or whatever, and we'll look at it and we'll come back and, okay, here's an offer. Great. The problem with that is that um, there comes a point where the the revenue is low enough that the the time it takes to just manually do the offer just isn't worth it. It there comes a point where there, there's the opportunity cost is too great, and you know with and, and really where Eli's real you know to me one of a great realization was that there's you know since when it was the '90s when Chris Anderson wrote the the long tail article in, in Wired which candidly has been largely debunked. However, there's exceptions to the rule, you know, uh, and this proves to be one of them because what Eli realized is there's plenty of artists out there making money who could use an advance. And by the way, it might be 50 bucks. It might be a hundred bucks, but to them that may make the difference in the world. That might be enough to, you know, help them pay rent for the month or, you know, what have you. And the problem was, was the current model couldn't serve them properly because it just, it, it, it was too inefficient. And so Eli came up with the idea for what we call the VATM, which enables us 
to basically take the manual process, which is time intensive and, you know, people intensive and take all the people out of it. And we, we can basically automate the whole underwriting offer, even the contractual process of providing artist financing. And what that means is, is that we can serve the long tail. You know, we can serve artists to not, first off, aren't even close to making a living full time from their art. Um, but even if they're making a living, they don't have access to traditional finance. You know, they're not, they, they might, they might have a record deal or a publisher, but it might not be big enough where they can say, Hey, you know, I've got a tax bill or something, you know, I'm going to get married. I need a couple of bucks right now. They're like, sorry, no ex contractual advance, or they don't even have a label or a publisher and they're just self-published. Um, I mean, banks aren't going to lend money to artists, certainly not small and mid-sized artists. And what are other choices? Credit card debt, friends and family. And so what, what this offers is the opportunity to enable you to kind of leverage your business to, to improve your financial stake without, most importantly, you're not giving anything up. You're not selling your catalog. You're not tying yourself up for because even if you went back to your label your publisher and i know because i was on that side of the table when artists wanted an extra contractual advance i'd be like oh i've got some leverage here okay i'll give you more money but you know what i want more product or i want more of this and so that free money isn't really so free and this is a really simple offer it's basically you know and again it's, it's just taking something that works in the manual world and and using technology to automate it and making it accessible to people. Very simple. The, the, we have an algorithm that looks, analyzes your, your statements and basically says, you know, we're going to pay, I'm just making this number up. We're going to advance you, you know, $5,000. We're going to collect $5,500 because the 500 is our big and no credit check. You're not, you're not collateralizing anything. You're not putting anything up. We just collect until we get the money and then you start collecting again period and the key is you do that that happens in third that all of that happens in less than 30 seconds yeah and and so functionally how does it work if you're a say let's use a tune core example since you brought that up eli does that essentially um lyric then sits in front of the royalty collection is it sort of it's like an it's like an assignment type thing yeah more or less yeah technically we structured the deal and this goes back to the beginning, which was what is the most efficient? Think about the analogy I use for making records and you, you know, your job was to solve for the artist's vision, right? And use the tools, both technical tools, musical instincts, psychology, whatever, to get them to that point. In this case, the artist is, is more of a cash flow management thing. And so what is the most efficient way that we can get them access to regular cash flow? And so what we did was we set it up as we used a, a, a factor where we're technically purchasing, in David's case, you know, $5,500 worth of royalties that are owed to them already because it's probably in the pipeline. And, um, and we're technically taking ownership of that next to $5,500 and we're giving them $5,000 for it cash up front. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then we just recoup 
I mean, we're not recouping, we're actually the new payee on the account. So, and then as soon as it's done, it automatically terminates and, you know, the uh, payee on the royalty stream goes back to, you know, the owner. Yeah. They never, uh, lose, and, they never lose control of their content or their IP ownership. Um, it's strictly, literally like walking to the bank, going in, taking out, you know, $400, $500. And, um, but instead of it coming out of your bank account, in this case, it's counting coming out of the receivables that you already have generated in the system that in, in some cases are 12 months in arrears. Yeah. So other than the fact that, um, and by the way, I don't say this to diminish it other, other than that it is this sort of grand democratization of access to capital and that facilitated by leveraging, you know, technology, which is, you know, something we've only been able to do in the modern era. Um, would that be the summation of the innovation here? Or is there, is there, is there more to the innovation behind the business offering that, that is not readily apparent? Like, are you, are you arbitraging somebody else's capital pool? Um, you know, what's, what, what's, what's the non-obvious thing here? Uh, one, uh, our loss ratio is 40 basis points mm. over 15 years. That's less, that's a third let by, by a third or more less than a bank's. So that, that gives us the ability to fund the transactions using bank capital, which I find ironic to the very customers they wouldn't lend money to. That's incredible. Um, and they're happy to do it. So, um, you know, we pushed out 22,000 advances in the last couple of years in 32 countries. They can be as large as 50 grand and as small as 250 bucks. Process. So essentially you, you've, you've basically pooled and then sort of abstracted the risk away from the bank's point of view. Structured it away. Yeah. Yeah. Structured, structured it away. away. Yeah. And now we're laying out there, I think basis points translates to about 2%. Is that right, Eli? I'm sorry. So you, the under, the underwriting, the, the loss ratio, I think for, you said 40 basis points for the layman out there. I think that translates to 1.2%. Is that correct? No. 40 basis points overall on the, the whole portfolio is uh, four-tenths of a point. Okay. Say it even okay. better. So, so it's a know, rounding error. <laughs> I'm a big rounding error, actually. But, um, but uh, you know, what David's referring to is if you think about two assets or two, two products, we have a manual product and we have an um, automated product. The automated product the loss ratio is right around 125 basis points, which is a point and a quarter. Um, but our on our manual business, uh, um, you know, our loss ratio is like virtually nothing. And is that essentially because you're just dealing? It's it's the it's the it's the category of artist you're dealing with in each of those products. The manual one is more due diligence, larger scale artists, so it's bigger dollars, but sort of not more intelligently, but more 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 selectively placed. And then the other product, by the nature of serving the long tail, you're just going to get people that fall out of it. Maybe they're not dedicated at the career level or they don't necessarily no, have. It's, it's uh, it, kind of that, but more, it, it's really the, um, again, goes to the DNA of how the receivable is generated, how the royalty is generated. 
So in the case of the manual business, and we're dealing with performing rights societies like BMI and ASCAP and music publishers, those songs, this is a good, easy way to explain it. You have two ecosystems where you can build hits on. One is the traditional system of radio, FM radio and television. And then you have the digital platforms, the streaming services, okay? So if you have, if you're Billie Eilish and you started on, um, you, you started on SoundCloud where you didn't make anything, you just put it up for free to see if anybody liked it. And then you move and then start getting traction and then you started able to monetize it. The longevity of that is by definition much more volatile. So meaning viral hits pop up, but can also go away real fast. Yeah. Because there's no sampling in it. it it's literally, you know, it's been played this many times. And the system, while it's gamed, is not gamed in the same way that the major label system and the, and the publishers and the PROs do. Um, you do on the flip side is you have a radio hit that comes and, and it's a radio hit when it, meet, when it meets a level where it is registering on the sampling radar of the major public, I mean, performance societies, that'll then translate over as well in, on the streaming side. But a streaming hit won't always translate to the other side. Right, right. And That's so you look at them, um, you know, they're just ones only get, you only be making money at BMI and ASCAP if you have a wide base sample of performances on your song versus if you're on Spotify or Deezer or Apple, you're earning money every time. That's a, so do me a favor, just just yeah. just for the sake of the audience, explain the way um, explain the way the collections work for BMI and ASCAP and how that relates like the sampling system. Could, could you just take can you give like the, the 10,000 foot view of that just so people understand? Yeah, so um, the performing rights societies um, by nature are not tech companies, never have been. And so they rely on sampling systems. It used to be written no different than Nielsen, say, for instance, where they used to have somebody write down at their home, write down what they watched that, you know, what commercials they saw or whatever to do ratings. Um, so what ends up happening is, is that the way that those companies as structures, they're going out and doing a sample. So if you have a hit in Nashville, I had this actually happen to me. I produced an artist in Memphis who had, a, had the number one rock hit in for like two or three weeks running, maybe even longer in Nashville on a station called KDF, which used to be the El Mordiana rock station here in town and didn't earn a dime in royalties. Not a dime. Didn't even show up on the radar screen because the sample was too narrow. There were only about three or four stations, maybe five, that were playing it. They were all getting heavy traction on the record, on the song, but literally didn't show up on, on BMI's radar screen. And 
I got signed to BMI when I was first coming to town. The Oaks were tight with BMI. I knew Francis Preston as a personal friend. So I was like, you know, it wasn't like I was some stranger. I could just walk in the office over at BMI and say, hey, what the heck's going on with this song? And, and I did. Um, versus if I'd have had less airplay on a broader range of stations, we'd actually earn money. And so what happens is you have two things that are going on at the PROs. One is that they're not tracking every, they're not even traction tracking half of the performances out there. It's probably, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's pretty small, maybe 10, 15% of the actual performances. Um, they're from the same players all the time, you know, same stations, station channels, whatever. And um, the second thing is, is that they've gained the, the system in that there's a base rate for uh, all plays that register in their system. And then there are bonus tiers. So you don't really make any real money until you get into the bonus tiers. And the bonus tiers are based on calendar quarters. So if at the end, if you release, if your record busts out in, let's just say March and hits the top 20 and um, runs from March through April, you will make literally half as much money or more or less than you did if all of those plays occurred within a calendar quarter. That's incredible. It's like it, it, what you're describing almost sounds like um, a, a video game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so it's it, go ahead. I'm sorry. It really, um, what it is is it's gained, and this isn't anything to do with the people that work at these companies. These are old institutions. I mean, That's 1914, right. I think, was when ASCAP was formed. Um, it's simply the way that those organizations in the industry have matured over a period of time. And so what you end up with is a very, very inefficient tracking and uh, attribution system. Yeah. So they're not tracking 100% of the performances. They're not even tracking 25% of the performances. Right. That's number one. And number two, their databases, you know, these are not Google. I mean, that's not their game. And yet, if you don't, if you know where the, where the music's being played and you know what's owed because the PROs make their money off a percentage of the advertising revenue they get from the broadcast channels, whether it's TV, radio, whatever, they know what they're going to get from live performances. Those are all pre-negotiated, you know, several years in advance in a blanket license. Mm -hmm. um, they still don't always know who to pay. Right. And so they end up, I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, Lawrence, but, you know, every royalty organization, every society, every freaking publisher, label, I mean, distributor out there has black box money. That's right. Sitting on a balance they have it? suspense somewhere. Yeah. And there's no incentive for them from a corporate standpoint to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this. The, um, 
you know, the man, the, the automated product um, makes, I, 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 that's sort of, that's a no brainer to me in terms of plugging into distributors. And there's, there's gotta be lots of different sort of ways to source deal flow or to source clients on the manual side of your business. Are you, are you an alternative slash competitor um, to say a major label or a ma major publisher? Are you a way for an artist uh, at that larger level to tap into funding without having to basically do the negotiation that David articulated? I can get access to capital now without having to give up another three years or another point or whatever it is. Is that, is that sort of the play there on the manual side of the business? Um, only in very rare cases. So, um, the fact is, is, you know, the majors have again, an inefficient old system where they're paying twice a year. Well, you're reconciling cash receipts. You collect every night. What the fuck does it take six months to, to account to me? Um, that's so in, in the, in most cases, again, you know, the average musician is making $25,000 or less in royalties. 75% of their income comes from performing live. So um, it's not something that they want to fool with at Sony or they want to fool with at any of these big companies. And so I've always found it in, a, in you know, as a win-win because and I sat on that side as an A&R guy for CBS. An artist comes to me and says, Eli, can you give me $2,500? You know, I got my car broke down. Okay. Let me see what I can do. Well, I got to get three signatures from three different cities, three different departments. And, you know, two, three weeks later, I might be, I might be able to get them as $2,500. Okay. I, I, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. Month goes by. Hey, Eli, can I get another twenty five hundred dollars? What do you need that for? Um, well, my car broke down again. Really? Seriously? Can't do that, man. You know, I can't keep going back to legal and whatever. And you're an asshole. Oh, I'll see you at the studio tonight. Now I got to go and I got to work with them in the studio after I just shut them down. And it doesn't work. So there is, I just, there's a huge need for that. Now, in today's world, with this tsunami of catalog acquisitions and this whole land grab culture, it's the biggest land grab since reconstruction, as far as I'm concerned. I've never seen anything like it in the music industry. Yeah. Um, the fact is that um, in those cases, that's changed the game quite a bit for the majors, for even for the licensing societies, because you now have Wall Street and private equity funds around the world and venture capital funds that are paying a 15 to 20 multiple, even on a catalog that's 50 grand a year. And so uh, it's like now they last couple of weeks. I mean, these are superstar deals, but, um, you know, uh, Paul Simon and Dylan went for 28 times NPS. Chili Peppers went for 33 times. And no matter what, for any evergreen catalog, you basically shouldn't, the current, you shouldn't be paying more than 18. Anything above 18 is no longer investment grade. It's insanity. 
It's private. It's private equity. If you think um, about it from a commercial real estate standpoint, Lawrence, um, commercial real estate um, will normally they use a cap rate, which is basically you nodding so you know what I'm talking about. So the cap rate in um, commercial real estate is about six to eight percent. Okay, the cap rate or the rate of return that you're expecting on your investment at a 15 multiple is about 3%. That doesn't even keep up with inflation. Yeah. And so, you know, clearly these funds have a different goal. They're not going to plan on hanging on to these catalogs for 28 years. Mm. They're just rolling them up so they can, you know, the bigger they make them, the more liquid that whole asset, that portfolio becomes to sell off to somebody else. And who's and the buyer at that scale? Who's the buyer? Is it, is it, is it, is it no longer affordable to an existing publishing company, media company? Is it, is it, is this where we get another major? Like what, what what's the Do you have a vision of what the yeah. end game is for that? Well, uh, yeah, the, the telecom companies are going to own all the music catalogs eventually or the media companies and, you know, the record companies, they will always be there, but they won't have the power that they do now. Because, you know, if you're Dolly Parton or the next Dolly Parton or the next Paul Simon or the next Chili Peppers, you know, the there are exceptions when somebody waves a seven-figure check in front of you for signing and you're a 19-year-old kid. It's pretty hard to say no. But normally what's going to happen is you're going to see the, you know, more artists stay independent because they can make their money directly. And this is part of what Lyric wants to be in the middle of, which is providing them the ability to manage their cash flow and their financing so they can continue to make prudent decisions, mm. not based on, well, if I don't get this money or this signing with Sony, uh, you know, I can't grow. Well, the fact is you can grow. And um, they're only a very, very finite number of catalogs that are available, that are earning. And I, I want to say less than less than 2% of the catalogs that are at the majors, um, if that, um, are what you would be make material money. And I would say that's 50,000 a year or more. Yeah. And so what happens is, there's only so much land. It's like lakefront, right? And, and, and lakefront property. And once it's gone, it's gone. Listen, I don't, I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, okay. and I'm certainly not the kind of person that begrudges somebody, you know, somebody else from making money. But the biggest head scratcher deal for me so far has been the Chili Peppers one. Um, they're either brilliant or, or I mean, I can't paying 150 million dollars for the Chili Peppers cat. <laughs> it's one thing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for Bob Dylan, but 150 million for the Red Hot Chili Peppers at a 30 multiple. Good God. 33. Good. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you an alternate theory and they're all just guesses that what's going to happen. So the, what's happening right now in terms of the catalog market is most of those deals are being fueled by private equity, either directly or operating companies funded by private equity um, because private because what's going on and this is not just in music is that private equity is 
have more money than good deals, which is a function of continued historic low interest rates. So investors are going down the yield curve and hedge funds underperforming. A lot of that money has been diverted to private equity. And they like, they like publishing uh, catalogs in general because it's a, it's a good way to deploy a lot of money quickly with low operational complexity. Because it's evergreen, it's, it's, there's not much you can do, good or bad, to change the outcome. 98% of the battle is paying the right price. But the problem is, is if, if you bought a company and you overpay, like an option company, I'll just make this up, you bought a plumbing manufacturer. You know, if you're overpaid, but hey, you know what? We can really get creative and grow the business and we can potentially overcome an overpayment. But the problem with catalogs, especially evergreen catalogs, is when you buy the Bob Dylan catalog, there's nothing you're going to do. Like Dylan's catalog is going to do what it's going to do. Maybe you could increase licensing, but is he going to approve licensing? Maybe there's some registration error somewhere you can clean up, but that's a few percent. You can't operate your way out of paying two or three times more than you should have. And so I think a few things are going to happen. One of which is is the the growth in in streaming has been grossly overstated. And what I mean is, and, and I'll point fingers, um, and I, I, supposedly, because I don't want to get sued, is that um, Goldman Sachs has been consistently saying there's going to be hockey stick growth in streaming to 2030. And they are talking about revenue. However, what they're doing, their methodology is, is supposedly, um, is that they're applying $5 in, in ARPU to every new user on Spotify. The problem is, is that everybody basically knows that the markets where you can get $5 of ARPU are the Western markets, U.S., Canada, U.K., et cetera. There's, everyone knows there's very little growth left in those markets. All the growth is coming from emerging markets, India, Philippines, Indonesia, et cetera, where the ARPUs are $0.10, cents, $0.15. Cents. So the problem is, is, and you're starting to see Spotify's, um, you know, Spotify's, you know, in their public reporting, their average revenue per user is going down. And what's going to happen is, is that, um, and I've seen other research. So Enders, which is a, a research, an independent research shop out of UK, thinks the next couple of years, streaming growth is going to be low single digits. I'm talking right. one to 2%. And so that, so I can't tell you how many decks that have crossed my desk for music tech companies or catalogs where they literally cut and pasted that Goldman Sachs chart. And so those numbers are being used, in some cases willfully, ignorantly, to justify these deals. And what's going to happen is, is pretty soon, it's not, humans are going to fall off a cliff, but it's going to plateau, and that growth is going to be gone, combined with the fact that a lot of the deals, a lot of the private equity deals that have been done the last few years, next couple of years, they're going to look for liquidity and look for an exit and look to sell. And also, sooner or later, interest rates are going to go up. I was going to say, God forbid, inflation kicks in and interest rate because there's nowhere else for interest rates to go. There's yeah, no, there's the no only way they go to up. So, yeah. if you think about what could be a perfect storm, and it doesn't require all elements, more deals being put on the market because previous buyers want to be sellers, streaming growth really plateauing and flattening. So, the idea, a lot of people, a lot of the reasons why you know they're buying catalogs is look. The whole industry is growing. So if I do nothing, 
it's going to continue to grow to five or seven percent per year. Once that flattens out, you're going to be like, God, I have to work to create growth. And that's going to lose interest. So what that all means mm. is there's going to be, I think in the next couple of years, going to be a shakeout. Does it mean a crash? No. But I think it means is the multiples are going to become sane again. And the major labels who have not, not exclusively, but have largely sat on the sidelines because they're in a good position because a lot of these financial sponsors are then using the majors to add in the publishing. So they get revenue from that. Sometimes they'll make a minority investment in the deals, but they're going to be in the best position to pick up the pieces. To, to again, I, I'm not saying there are going to be bargains, but I think the pricing will get a little more rational. And I think I actually think the major labels um, and the major indies, a la, well, some of the major indies are going to be some of the victims, but at least the majors are going to be in a position to, I think, pick up the pieces um, and buy them. Buy them at saner multiples. That's yeah. that's my guess. Basically, anybody who's sitting on a, a cash hoard or something that they can leverage in the next three to five years is going to be in a really good buying position. Uh, Correct. Yeah. I would also, um, as a counter argument, just intellectually to what David said, um, I don't think just from the research that I've been doing, that um, I doubt that half the money that's being generated out there is being collected, let alone paid out to people. And I mentioned that earlier. And as technology, it, it's not going to be the industry that will fix that. I mean, back in the days uh, when Francis was still alive and running BMI, she formed this kind of international coalition of you know, right society CEOs to put together a global database so that they could actually get their act together. Um, and Francis had is, you know, had basically total control over BMI because she built it into what it was for the modern age. And yet she couldn't get it done. It didn't happen. Yeah. And But now you've got the same in the capital markets, you've got those same deep pockets and not the same ones, but similar deep pockets in those same verticals, they're putting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into tracking consumption, tracking payments, and creating a global database. And yeah, like, solving metadata, yeah. Yeah, and so if you think about it, Elon Musk comes in and solves the pro, you know, totally transforms the car industry, you know, just out of sheer audacity and because he has deep enough pockets from PayPal. And PayPal did the same thing for payments. And he's doing the same thing for space travel. Um, you know, if the government can't get their act together, then screw it, I'll do it. Um, and the same thing is happening on, you know, what Bezos did at Amazon. And so, um, technology and the speed at which it, the amount of capital behind it and the speed at which it, it solves issues will solve this problem. And it won't be the music industry that solves it. And if I am sitting on, if I'm sitting on a board at, I don't know, BlackRock, and I'm looking at the next investment or West, whatever that, what's the name of that capital company that's back behind Concord? Oh, David walked away. 
<laughs> I just uh, had a buzzin. The, the uh, Michigan, uh, the Michigan State Pension Fund, actually, it's a, uh, it's yeah. a Michigan. It's Michigan Teachers Pension Fund or State Pension Fund. They're all really, really smart people. I mean, just, you know, at the top one-tenth of one percent at what they do. I, I got to believe that they are aware of what David is talking about, which is an actual fact, that our poos are going to go down. It's going to be, um, become more and more of a commodity um, and price like it. But the efficiency the inefficiency in the system is really in tracking consumption and attribution who do we pay and how much do we pay it's funny you that you articulate a problem statement that way because when i was on the inside of some of these companies the the impression i walked away with was oh my god all these years of thinking the things that appeared to be um malfeasance or corruption were actually just like incompetence and antiquated systems. Not to say that there's not a Venn diagram where those things <laughs> don't overlap, but my God, it's, it's, it, a lot of it was just infrastructure. It was, well, you know, uh, you know, uh, Sally was the person that, that processed this particular system for 35 years and Sally yep, took a buyout yep. during one of the waves of consolidation. Yep. And now nobody knows how to do that anymore. I mean, it's, it's literally that. It's also the, you know, the way those companies were structured for incentive. There was no incentive for Marty Bandier, nor is there for John Platt to take a basically a, a game changing gamble in terms of going to devil down the company, you know, the future of the company on a particular technology to make it more efficient. I mean, John's an A&R guy, pure and simple. Always has been, right? Now he is the global chairman, the head of Sony, all of Sony ATV Music. And, you know, and Marty Bandier was an A&R guy too. And, you know, they just, point is, is there wasn't any corporate incentive for them to take that kind of risk. It was just the opposite. Their bonuses were tied to what was happening that year. Yeah. So it wasn't just a, I, I just don't think there was any alignment in the existing system simply because of inertia and just age of of that that industry to change it no different than the car business and you know here's this rich crazy kid from south africa out in damn california telling detroit how they're going to run their car business or telling japan how they're going to run their car business right right and it took that audacity in those deep pockets to do it yeah well, with all that said, um, and I want to be respectful of, uh, of your time. I, I know we're already running over a little bit. Um, what's the next frontier for you guys? Like, is there, is it, is it just more of the same and scale this up? Um, David, you mentioned earlier, there may be other types of IP. Is there, is there anything you can, or you want to talk about there? Or is that for another conversation a few months from now? I'll, I'll defer to Eli. <laughs> that might be all the answer i need <laughs> well, all i can say is there there's the like any good business you know you don't want to overextend yourself but this this platform this platform can go wider in terms of reach and deeper in terms of offerings to our our customers and our users and those are all um they're all in various stages of, of being developed. Um, but like any, you know, because of, because we're dealing with 
artist and our money and you we have to move slowly so that we don't screw up that part because no one no one no you know people are okay with you know the bumps in the road and bugginess for like a social media app but they're not interested in that when they're not getting their money and so um as a you know even though we're not a bank we you know we're we view ourselves as kind of financial services business and that is about you know being responsible being customer focused and not overextending yourself in terms of what you're doing but um there's wide and opportunity vertically and horizontally that we're developing that's great I would, listen i would add to that Lawrence, just um or to codify it is the very things that i talked about that you know will come from the outside of the music industry in terms of tracking consumption distribution um, the new things we're working on um, expand the banking as a service offering that Lyric will be able to offer past just advances or revolving lines of credit. And the reason is because we're working with those very companies to be able to effectively um, as they're reinventing how people get paid and, and being able to see what's actually going on in a real-time basis, we're working in conjunction with them to provide that access, not just to the labels, but to the rights holders. Oh, think about it like three basic questions. How much did I make last week as an artist around the world? Where did it come from and when am I getting paid? Our next set of, uh, our next product launch is we'll answer those three questions in real time. That's great. All right. I'm going to look forward to, to watching that roll out and, and talking to you about it again in the future. Um, thank you for making time to do this. Um, it's really been great to, uh, to learn a little bit Where about your business. At? Sorry. Where are you based at? I am uh, just South of Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, if you get to Nashville, we give great porch. <laughs> I would like to take you up on that. I'm actually due for a trip. I'm actually, I'm like everybody else. I'm due for a trip everywhere. So uh, right, right. hopefully sooner than later. Thank you so much, Eli, David, and the team at Lyric Financial. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com join us again next week and in the meantime be safe and stay in touch